morning, everybody. It's uh, always a pleasure to be here uh, among you this morning, and uh, and uh, yes, this morning's no different. A few words from uh, from the Word of God, and it's something that I've I've actually spent uh, time really thoroughly enjoying getting into the Word uh, over these last little while. So maybe like your place, our house has been quite mesmerised uh, this week surrounding the Queen's funeral and the pomp and the ceremony and the just the, the majestic way that uh, the British know how to put on such a, uh, a, a celebration, such an event. But I think the highlight for me was, and what was particularly encouraging and thrilling was to hear of the Queen's saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And to hear throughout that funeral both the scriptures that were read, the songs that were sung and the words that were spoken by the Archbishop so clearly announced the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to millions of people around the world. It was really nice to note that the sovereign, the monarch of the Commonwealth, a Commonwealth made up of 50 countries or more, almost a third of the world's population, in her life and in her death, honoured her sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that stood out to me about the Queen's life was her keenness to meet her subjects, to meet the people within the Commonwealth. One of the things that I didn't really note, uh, notice until, um, until this funeral was the fact that in 1954, when she came to Australia, she met almost 70% of our population, or at least may not met them, but at least 70% of our population saw her uh, during that visit. But not everybody gets to meet and speak with their sovereign. In fact, access to them is extremely restricted. You can only attend one of their events, you can only attend one of their places where they live if you have an invitation. It would have been great had we all have been there on Monday night it would be great if whilst we're in England one day we could just pop on into any of the castles that we wish to to say g'day. But that's not possible. We have to wait for an invitation. And this got me thinking about God's dwelling palace. Now if you're someone who takes notes, someone who would like a title for this morning's service uh, message, I'm looking at God's dwelling place. And are we allowed in? Do we get an invitation to his dwelling place? So where does God live and how can I access him? The short answer is God has already extended an invitation to each one of us. In fact, to everybody around the world. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A clear invitation to everybody. So where does God dwell and where can we access him? Well, like any good book, like any good movie, there is always a central theme or a central plot that is explored. And the Bible is no difference, no different. There are many subplots, there are many great stories within the Bible that we can read and that we can learn from. But one of the main and clear themes is that God wishes to dwell with his people. We're first introduced to this theme in Genesis chapter 3, the third book of the Bible, right at the beginning. You know what happens in chapter 1 and chapter 2? We see God's creative power 
as he brings everything into being that we can see around us. We see the pinnacle of his creation, which was the creation of man and woman in the garden. But it's not until chapter 3 and verse 8 that we see God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. We see God dwelling with his people. We can tell from the conversation in chapter 3 that this was not the first time that God had physically met with Adam and Eve. It's quite probable to assume from the text that God's interactions with Adam and Eve were regular, personal and without any barriers, without any need for an invitation. God, man and woman were perfectly har- we were in perfect harmony and communion just as God has in- had intended it when he created them. Perfection was found in the garden. But unfortunately, as we know, the conversation in Genesis chapter 3 also tells us about the disobedience of Adam and Eve. They were given one simple protective commandment, which was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. And yet they disobeyed God. And at that point, that perfect harmony, that perfect communion was broken as there became a sin barrier between God and his people. As a result, mankind was no longer allowed access to God's dwelling place and they were removed from the garden. Whilst we read instances of God's interactions with mankind after that period of time, an example being Moses getting the ability to see the back of God as he passed by, was not able to see his face, to see his front, because God was so holy and so perfect and so just, and Moses was not. God's desire, though, was still to be with his people. He no longer had a dwelling place with them. But he says to Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, God said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God now had a dwelling place among his people, the tabernacle. But because of the sin barrier, he had little to no interaction with them. Tom mentioned to us this morning about the Day of Atonement, the opportunity that God gave for one person, the high priest, and only once per year to come and access God in his dwelling place. But because of the sins of the people, this was a highly regulated uh, opportunity. On this day, the high priest represented all of God's people, one person only, once per year, on behalf of all of God's people. He approached God to make atonement for the sins of the people, an atonement that really was only a covering of sin For a 12-month period for the following year, this action needed to happen again and again and again. I really encourage you, please, to, when you go home, pick up the book of Leviticus and have a look at chapter 16. And there you'll see the extent of the cleansing rituals and the animal sacrifices that had to take place before the high priest could even access the temple. Reading this chapter, Leviticus 16, highlights the enormous 
gulf between God's holiness and man's sinful state. I would like, love to take you through it, but of course we can't. We don't have time to, uh, to go through all of that, plus uh, have a look at the passage that we're going to uh, soon. But reading this chapter, Leviticus 16, will really help you understand more of this morning's message. So God was now dwelling with his people, but it was limited in frequency. It was limited in who he met, and it came with significant barriers to entry. This was definitely not what God had in mind for his interaction with his people. But because of the sin barrier between God and his people, this was the best that could be done. But of course, God was not satisfied with this interaction. God had bigger plans for us, his people. His aim was to return to that same unbridled interaction, that same harmony and communion that he enjoyed with Adam and Eve in the garden. But of course, there's one big issue, the sin of mankind, the disobedience of all of us. As Tom mentioned to us, knowing that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, God implemented a plan that he devised in Genesis chapter 3. And that is he sent his son Jesus into the world to be the propitiation for our sin, as is mentioned in 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. Jesus became the final sacrifice for our sins. Emmanuel, God with us. God's perfect plan laid on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God came to earth in human form and once again was dwelling among his people. But this time it was in the body of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this too was limiting. God was limited to a physical body, was limited to the people whom Jesus met and was limited by time. Because Jesus came for one purpose, and that was to be the propitiation for our sins. That was to be that final sacrifice to die in our place. It was the sacrifice of Christ that has been given to all who believe in him. It was through him that we get the promise of a future dwelling with God. So let's just sum for a minute what we've been through. God dwelt in perfect harmony with Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world and created a chasm, a sin barrier between God and mankind. God then dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, but with immense restrictions due to man's sin. God dwelt briefly with his people through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, but again with limitations. But God, through Christ, gave everybody an invitation to come to him and to dwell with him. And then Christ, after his death and resurrection, let the earth, left the earth with a promise of a future dwelling in which we could live with God. In John chapter 14, verse 2, he says these words, In my Father's house 
is many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. In the meantime, between Christ leaving this earth and his promised return, here in our present day, right here in our midst, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 tells us that God dwells within us, within those who believe via his Holy Spirit. And further, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, just like we are here this morning, there am I in the midst of them. So God is here this morning dwelling among us. But again, our access to God is somewhat limited. We can't see him in physical form and we can't audibly hear from him. But he is here and his Holy Spirit makes him known to us. But a day is coming when there will be no more limitations. And Revelation gives us further detail of this future dwelling place. If you uh, wish, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 and we'll read about this future dwelling place. Revelation 21, and we're going to read from verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We'll leave it there. We read in the third chapter of the Bible, God dwelling in perfect harmony and communion with his creation, with mankind. And here in the second last chapter of the Bible, we see again God living in perfect harmony and communion with his people. If that doesn't excite you, and I'm not quite sure what does, a place where we live with God. God himself, it says, will be with us. And have a look at what life will be like. He'll wipe away every tear. 
No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more trouble, no more heavy burdens for us to carry. You know, all the pageantry and all the majestic nature of the Queen's funeral are nothing compared to what is to come for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. We have an unrestricted invitation to dwell with God in his dwelling place. So what happened? How did we go from such immense restrictions with God dwelling with his people in the Old Testament where we could only access one person on behalf of everybody after enormous amounts of cleansing rituals and animal sacrifices? How did we go from there to this open, unrestricted invitation into God's dwelling place where he himself will dwell with us. And this is what I want to explore this morning. It all comes back to one of the verses I mentioned earlier on, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A big word, but one that I actually think it's important for us to understand and which we will do this morning. The Oxford Dictionary defines propitiate as something to win or to regain favour by doing something that pleases the person who has been offended. It's more than an apology And it typically involves doing something to earn forgiveness or redemption. However, there's a problem with this definition and it's found in Romans chapter 3. Verse 10, it says, there is no one righteous. There is not even one of us that is righteous. There is no one who seeks after God. You know, this is everyone's default position before God. This is our default position before God. We are not righteous and we do not naturally seek after God. Chapter Romans 3 goes on further in verse 20 and it says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The NIV translation puts it this way. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, we have a big problem. Sin is causing a barrier between us and God. We need to win his favour to earn his forgiveness and avert his anger. But yet, it says clearly in the Bible, there is nothing that we can do to earn his favour. There is nothing that we can do to avert God's wrath and anger. And here in this marvellous story enters God and his love for us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible mentions the word propitiation a few times, but it's actually best described in Hebrews chapter 10 where we're going to park ourselves for a little while now. A passage all about propitiation, but yet the word itself is not mentioned in this chapter. So turn to Hebrews 10, if you will. And as we read this passage, I'd like you to identify the contrast 
between the Old Testament access to God versus what Christ accomplished on our behalf when he died on the cross. So let's read chapter 10. Now, Tom's already read from us for us from chapter 9, and it's a great exercise to read both of these chapters together. In fact, I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 16 and then turn straight to Hebrews 9 and 10 and read them and see the detail and see the contrast. But let's pick it up from Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For them would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And we'll leave it there. I'd like to go through this in a bit more detail, if you you don't mind. Verses 1 and 2, let's look at those together. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have been ceased to offer, be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. The laws and the rules contained within the Old Testament were never going to be the end goal. Remember, we said that God had something better in mind. They were just a shadow of what was to come. Right throughout the Old Testament, you see signposts that point to Christ and the reality of something far, far better. In the Day of Atonement, and all other sacrifices and laws were enough, if they were, 
So it would never have to be repeated, which is what this passage says. We would have been made perfect and the barrier, that sin barrier between God and us would have been torn down. But what it says in these verses is that these sacrifices could never make anyone perfect. Verse 3 and 4 says, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. These sacrifices that were performed in the Old Testament times could never take away sin. They were purely a reminder to God's people of two things. First, that God is a holy and righteous and perfect God. And secondly, the people of God are not. They were barred from his presence because of their sin. The sacrifice of atonement that the high priest undertook merely covered the people's sin for a time and had to be repeated annually. Let's carry on verses 5 through 9. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In bird offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book as written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. But then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So God was not pleased with the sacrifices nor with the blood of bulls and goats. This was not his desire nor his original plan. But in these verses, we see God's plan unfolding. We see that Jesus is the person who is speaking here in verse 5, 6 and 7. And he notes that a body has been prepared for him so that he might become the final sacrifice. The laws and its rituals and its offerings is the first that's being referred to in these verses. And the sacrifice of Jesus is what's being referred to as the second. What was a shadow, what was a precursor, a sign, is no longer required as the final sacrifice has been made. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and he has died in our place. Verse 10. By that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The death of Christ on the cross has made us sanctified. What does that mean? It means we've been declared righteous and we have been made holy in God's sight. Remember, that was the issue. That was the sin barrier, that we were no longer righteous. We were not holy. God was and we weren't. And therefore, that sin barrier was came between us. But here, through Christ's sacrifice... That has been removed. We are declared righteous and holy because of Christ's sacrifice. God's wrath and his his anger has been turned away. And here in this verse, we see the definition of propitiation. Christ's sacrifice has made us righteous and has turned away God's wrath. Next section, verse 11 to 14. 
And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, this is the Lord Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Notice the contrast here in this section. Repetitive sacrifices that can never take away sin, that can never please God, versus a one-off sacrifice that never needs to be repeated again. Christ's sacrifice does have the power to remove sin. And it's his sacrifice that finally brings satisfaction and pleasure to a holy and a righteous God. God did not take pleasure in his son suffering in our place for the sin of his people. But he took pleasure in the fact that the penalty for sin had been paid. And the fact that that sin barrier had been removed and the opportunity returned for God to dwell himself with his people. God is pleased with the sacrifice because it was sufficient to pardon our sins and to bring redemption for the sins of the whole world. Jesus had done everything that was necessary. We read uh, in Revelation 21 that it is done. We know that on the cross of Calvary, as Jesus uh, passed away, he said, it is finished. And here we see him sitting at the right hand of God. A finality, everything that needed to be done has now been done. And in this final section, verse 15 onwards, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, He had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts, into their minds, and I'll write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So because of Christ, because of his sacrifice in our place, Our sins, our lawless deeds will be remembered no more. Our sins are forgiven. And therefore there is no longer any need for future sacrifices. Under the regime of the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, which God set up so he could dwell with his people despite their sin, there was actually no forgiveness of sin just a temporary cover, a shadow looking forward to Christ's final sacrifice. It was repeated annually. God was not pleased and that sin barrier remained between God and his people. But under Christ's sacrifice, under his propitiation for our sins, under Christ's sacrifice, there was complete and full forgiveness of sin. One sacrifice forever, and God was pleased and God was satisfied. 
Further on in Romans 3, we looked at a couple of verses there before talking about our unrighteous state and the fact that we could not earn our own righteousness. In Romans 3, verses 24 and 26, you may turn there if you wish, we see the definition of propitiation in action. Verse 24 says this, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now these verses do seem a bit of a mouthful and seem a little difficult to understand, but it does actually give us clearly three defining elements of Christ's final sacrifice for us, of this big word, propitiation. The first one is this, God's need for justice is fully satisfied. Whilst we couldn't do anything to pay for our sin, Jesus did by stepping into our place. We know from Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, punishment had to be handed out. Christ, the sinless one, died instead of us, satisfying God's requirement for justice. Here's the first point. God's need for justice is fully satisfied. Secondly, God's anger is averted away from us and onto Christ. We read there in this passage that God passed over our sins. In the NIV version, it says that God left the sins unpunished. His anger was turned away, was averted from us and onto his son. Poured out on Christ, on the cross of Calvary. And then the third element we see in these three verses is that because an acceptable sacrifice had finally been made, God can now show us mercy. Another word for forbearance, which is what is used in this particular passage. God showed us mercy and granted us salvation. So going back to this definition of propitiation, of doing something to earn forgiveness or redemption and winning the favour of someone, we have won God's favour, but not because of anything we have done, purely and totally because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross of Calvary on our behalf. Remember, it's God's love that has put us in this position. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. The fact that God first loved us while we were in this situation of hopelessness shows an incomprehensible, unusual an unprecedented love. Just have a think about that for a minute. When was the last time you showed love to someone who had no regard for you? 
But this is what God did for us. He showed us an incomprehensible, an unusual and an unprecedented love for each one of us when we did not deserve it. And finally, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John reminds us that Christ is not only the propitiation for our sins personally, but for the sins of the whole world. That sin barrier that we've been talking about has been removed and the invitation to dwell personally and permanently with the living God that we read in Revelation 21 is now extended to the whole world. We don't get an invitation to visit the Queen. We have an invitation to visit the King of Kings permanently. But yet this invitation is only effective for those who believe. It's not an automatic invitation to every single person in this world. It's available for everybody, but only effective to those who believe. John says in chapter 1, verse 12 of his gospel, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, we read these words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is the Lord Jesus Christ talking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. There's that perfect harmony, that perfect communion between God and his people restored. If you want to dwell with God in that home that he has prepared for you, a place that has no more brokenness, that has no more sickness, that has no more crying, that has no more pain, no more death, no more trouble, no more heavy burdens to carry. If you want to be in that place with God, in that position of perfect harmony, then you have to receive Christ personally yourself. You have to believe in him for your salvation. You have to open the door and let him in. Today is the day of salvation. That invitation is open, but it's only effective to those who believe. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment as we just reflect on what Christ's sacrifice has actually done for us. In a moment, we're just going to sing a beautiful hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My question this morning for you is, who do you trust in? What is it that you trust in? What do you put your hope in? Are you carrying a heavy burden that you need to take off your shoulders? Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Christ offers this to everybody. I ask you, I urge you to take this opportunity now, where you are, to accept Christ and his sacrifice to you. Choose today whom you will serve. Take the opportunity now to declare your belief in him. And if you're someone here this morning who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, take this opportunity to rededicate yourself to Christ, to live for him 
that he does has done immeasurably more for you in his sacrifice on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the cross that has accomplished something that we cannot do. There is nothing in us that is good. And yet Jesus Christ died in our place. You first loved us. And we thank you that this sin barrier that we have caused has been removed. And we long for that day. Oh, we look forward to that day when we'll be in that new heaven, that new earth, where we will dwell with you in paradise for eternity. Thank you for our saviour. Thank you that our hope is built on the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.